Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be looking at the three exciting space missions arriving at Mars this month. On February the 9th, the UAE Space Agency's Hope probe arrives at Mars. On the 10th, it's the turn of China's space agency's Tianwen-1. And on the 18th, NASA's Mars Perseverance rover touches down on the Red Planet. We'll hear from two people at NASA JPL heavily involved in the science that's going to be taking place on Mars with that Mars Perseverance rover. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Teledyne Princeton Instruments. Teledyne Imaging is about to change scientific astronomical imaging. With large format and low read noise, the future of astronomy is here. Sign up for their webinar, enabling the next generation of astronomy, to find out more at this groundbreaking advancement in sensor and camera technology at princetoninstruments.com webinars. Space missions to Mars are difficult, landing on Mars even more so. Famously, over half of the planned missions to Mars that humanity has attempted so far have failed. In just 10 days this month, three missions are attempting to reach the Red Planet. There's much excitement about the missions. The Mars Perseverance rover, for example, has a helicopter drone which will deploy in the Martian atmosphere. The UAE's mission is the first by an Arabian state. And Tianwen-1 has been sending back images of Mars as it gets closer to our neighbour. As is often the case with space missions, there's plenty to be said about the politics here on Earth behind them. The UAE space agency scientists have been keen at points to stress to the press the importance of collaboration in their mission. As well, of course, as highlighting the country's scientific prowess. To the frustration of many space journalists outside of China, information on their mission has been difficult to come by. And it's worth remembering that in their recent moon missions, there's been next to radio silence until they've successfully landed. By contrast, even with coronavirus restrictions as they are, NASA's Mars Perseverance rover is by no means a secret. I caught up with two of the scientists involved in the mission at different points in their career. For Kelsey Moore, this is her first mission to anywhere. Luther Beagle has been involved with a host of missions, including ones to Saturn and, of course, the Mars Curiosity rover. And we'll hear all about the science of that mission in those interviews. The Hope Probe from the United Arab Emirates Space Agency is at the Red Planet to study effectively the weather and how it changes over the seasons. They'll be looking at how hydrogen and oxygen are lost into space. No doubt that will be of interest to those who wish to settle humanity on the red planet in the future, but it will also be of interest to those of us who'd like to know how Mars has turned into the dusty, barren planet that we know today. On hope, there are three main instruments. There are two spectrometers, one in infrared and the other in ultraviolet, and an imager that will study the lower atmosphere in visible and ultraviolet wavelengths. The scientists have also been keen to point out that they'll be providing us with images of Mars that cover the whole disk. 
to this point, only Hubble has managed that. And personally, I'm most intrigued by their promise of a crescent Mars. Although information about the success of the mission so far has been scant from the Chinese Space Agency, we do know a fair amount about the science that they're hoping to carry out. Tianwen-1 is both an orbiter and a lander. The lander will hopefully reach the surface later this year. Together, they'll create a geological map of Mars. They'll explore the characteristics of the Martian soil and potentially locate water ice deposits. They will analyse the surface material composition and investigate the Martian atmosphere and climate at the surface. It will also help to understand the electromagnetic and gravitational fields of the planet. The orbiter is equipped with seven instruments, two cameras, a subsurface penetrating radar, a spectrometer and instruments to analyse the charged particles in the Martian atmosphere. If just one of these three missions is successful, it will add greatly to our understanding of Mars. If we manage to buck the trend and more than 50%, or indeed all three of them are, then the sum of our knowledge will increase dramatically. As I say, on February the 18th, it's NASA's turn to arrive at the Red Planet. And ahead of that landing, I caught up with NASA JPL's Luther Beagle. I'm the principal investigator of the Sherlock Instrument on Mars 2020, or uh, the Perseverance rover, as it's now called. I'm sure everybody who's listening to this podcast remembers the Curiosity rover landing on Mars and that, well, it's seven minutes of terror. You've got it again this time, you know, with all that parachutes and will they deploy? You know, it, why are you putting yourself through that again? Because it worked. <laughs> That's that's really legitimately the reason. So it was a good system back when they did it in 2012. Um, it had really good engineering. It had good practices. It worked flawlessly. It worked exactly the way it was. And the idea behind the, the this rover was is that we were going to try to use a lot of the same technology and and, and hardware that we built for the first one uh, for this particular one. And since all of that hardware was proven out, and there really wasn't uh, an impetus to change to something new uh, to demonstrate some of their technology, um, we went with uh, the current landing system. Are there any differences that we should be aware of? From what I understand, um, there's a lot more cameras on this one. So we'll be able to see the balloon deploy, uh, not in real time. It'll take a while for that data to come back. But you'll see the balloon deploy. Uh, there's a microphone uh, on it as well. Um, it should be turned on during uh, EDL, entry, descent, and landing. Uh, the... Um, but everything else should work exactly the same. It's the whole seven minutes of, of terror again. It's funny because we've been working on Sherlock for seven years and we joke, and I worked on the Mars Science Laboratory, the, uh, the drill and the, and the sample handling system. And we joked about the seven minutes of terror being nothing because we lived seven years of development terror, um, uh, going to different meetings and, and trying to see things work and doing different testing and things like that. So seven minutes is no problem for us. Um, we've already lived terror. <laughs> yeah, I, it, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be successful. Obviously, it's different this time. And with COVID, we're not going to be seeing, I presume, those big celebrations at, and hugging, etc. at JPL. Where, where are you going to be watching? I'm probably going to be watching it from the house with the people that put up with me over the past seven years, um, my family, uh, uh, and then we will um, will probably be online for a while. I may or I may go into work because of COVID. Everything has changed. It, when I got to first got to JPL in 1997, uh, about four months later, uh, Pathfinder landed, and it was the greatest thing ever because there was press, there was there was giveaways, everybody was excitement. There was a 
real series of excitement going on at JPL. And, and that same thing happened with Murr, that happened with MSL, it happened with Cassini, um, and really enjoyed all of that. But all of that is now taken away because of COVID. There's not a lot, there's not going to be a, a giant press contingency. There's not going to be a public, you know, gathering. For curiosity, we went over to Caltech with you know, 2,000 other people to watch it land, which was really exciting. Um, but none of that appears to be happening this year. It'll all be online. So uh, I'm, st- I'm still debating on what, where exactly I'm going to be and who online I'm going to be with. Um, but th- everything, is, and everything is changing with that regard, too, depending on the COVID spike in California. So we're all doing the best we can because we're make- kind of making all this up as we go along. It's been pretty fun to watch in that non-fun way. Right, so the way of landing the rover is the same, but the rover's different. Why, why do we need another one? What this rover does is this rover is the next generation. It's much more complex than MSL was. And it, it's doing two different things at the same time. The first thing it's doing is it's doing in-situ science. That's why we signed up for it. That's why we've built the instruments. That's why we've worked as an integrated science team for the past seven years. And we're going to do in-situ in, in science on a different location on Mars. Curiosity and Mir have gone maybe a total of about, I think it's about 130 kilometers now, which is really not even scratching the surface. It's a very small, small area that we've actually experienced. So we're going to go to a new place. Uh, this is a River Delta, Jezero Crater. Um, we're going to look for a different, different set of things. So we're going to do a great in-situ science. And the other thing it's going to do is it's, it's a preparing for sample return. So this, part of this rover, this rover does not have the ability to acquire a sample in the MSL case. What this one's going to do is it's going to acquire cores. They're going to be immediately sealed up in containers, and these containers are going to stay with the rover or be placed on the Martian surface. A mission in 2026 or 2028 is going to come pick them up, and then it's going to return them to Earth uh, for analysis in, in terrestrial laboratories. So what we're going to be able to do is, is we're going to be able to look at these cores before we collect them. We're going to look at the site. We're going to figure out where the site came from. We'll get that p- particular piece of Mars, seal it up. Something else will come grab it, bring it back to Earth. So we know exactly where it came from. We know exactly what it looked like when we picked it up. And then we can do more science with it on Earth than we ever could do in situ. And that's what this mission does. It does the in situ science, and it, it's the first step of sample return. We'll hear more from Luther Beagle later in the podcast and crucially find out a lot more about Sherlock that wonderfully named instrument but somebody whose work has informed this search for the signs of life in the rocks on Mars is Kelsey Moore. I I keep saying that I'm new to the mission but I guess that's not really true anymore 2020 just kind of seemed like it went past in a blink but I graduated with my PhD from MIT in April of 2020 and then from there shifted over. So now I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Jet Propulsion Lab. Um, so NASA Caltech affiliation, diving into working on the rover and analyzing ancient rocks on Earth and jumping into how we can analyze rocks on Mars. For, for my PhD, what I was really interested in was analyzing some of the oldest evidence of life that we have on Earth. So for the first you know couple billions of years of Earth history, most of the life that existed was very simple microbial life, not anything that's easy to recognize in the rock record, like a dinosaur bone or something like that. So we have to get a little bit creative about the ways that we find that evidence of life. Um, so biosignatures, are that's a word that we use a lot. And a biosignature can be anything that is some evidence of life. So that can be 
an actual fossil of a bacterial cell, or it can be um, like a microbial mat. So if you go out to a pond or a river and you see that sort of scuzzy green stuff that's covering rocks, those mats themselves can get fossilized um, and preserved, or just the organic carbon compounds can get preserved in the rock record as well. So those all fall under the umbrella of biosignatures, some evidence that life existed and was interacting with the environment in some way. So throughout my PhD, I was analyzing, as I said, ancient biosignatures on Earth and trying to understand how ancient microbes helped to create minerals, helped to precipitate minerals and fossilize themselves. And now what I've started doing is analyzing some of those ancient rocks that are somewhat analogous to the rocks that we might find on Mars. And we're trying to figure out how we will go about searching for similar biosignatures on Mars. How we'll identify them and be able to recognize them if the rover sees them, picks up evidence of them, um, or if we potentially bring some of those samples back to Earth, how we'll analyze them when they get back here. And whereabouts on Earth would you find these rocks that might be analogous to what we find on Mars? They're from all over the Earth, uh, which is pretty exciting. They're they're preserved in places like Australia. Um, they're preserved in different places in Canada. So different rock formations that we've gotten lucky enough to have still exist on the surface of the earth. So we can go and collect rocks that are two billion years old, two and a half billion years old, and just go right out into the field in Australia or Canada or other places and pick up the rocks, collect them and bring them back to the lab. They're just literally lying on the floor. <laughs> Yeah, more like if you see um, like a road cut. Okay. <laughs> They're like within a <laughs> within a larger feature. You have to use a rock hammer and chisels and things to get them out. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, that's how you do it on Earth, right? People with rock hammers. But with this Mars twenty twenty rover, you're saying that it could potentially, if the signs of life are there, then this rover could potentially see that in the rocks on Mars. Potentially, so. I think when people traditionally think of finding evidence of past life, your brain initially thinks, oh, a dinosaur bone or a shell or something like that. And those types of organisms that made bones and teeth and shells that are very easy to identify in the rocks when we see them, those more complex organisms are pretty recent relative to, you know, the four and a half billion years that the Earth existed and, you know, similar timeline from Mars. So the ancient microbial life that did exist on Earth and may potentially have existed on Mars is much harder to identify. It's not as simple as saying, oh, there's a dinosaur bone. We can go and pick that up. We know that's definitely life. What the rover will be looking for are different combinations of chemical signatures, so different combinations of elements that seem like they might be indicative of life. Um, different organic compounds, so carbon compounds, different structures in the rock. So we see um, on Earth, we look for stromatolites. Those are these sort of layered structures that we find in the rock record that are those microbial mats that are kind of accumulating sediments and minerals. And those types of, of rock formations and chemical signatures and spectral signatures we have to synthesize all of that data together and try to create a compelling argument for why we think something might have been a biosignature indicative of life. But it's it's non-trivial compared to the more complex life that we, we can easily identify. <laughs> yeah, and obviously on Earth, humans have got eyes to look at these things, but the Perseverance rover's got quite a few instruments on it. Are they all looking for signs of life? 
There are a couple of them that are doing things like um, monitoring atmospheres and, and looking at the deep subsurface. Um, but the ones that I'm really excited about are Sherlock and Pixel and sort of the paired analyses that we can do with Sherlock and Pixel. So Sherlock is a, uh, a deep UV Raman spectrometer instrument. It's gonna be able to analyze at a micro scale um, what kinds of compounds are within the rocks that the rover sees and potentially identify organic compounds if they're there. Pixel, paired with that, Pixel is looking at chemical signatures, chemical fingerprints. So um, it'll be able to pick up and map out different elements that are on a micro scale on the rocks. And so by combining looking for those, uh, those organic compounds with the elemental composition of the rocks that surround it, I think those two data sets will be really powerful in helping us try to identify biosignatures. Are you hopeful? <laughs> That's a great question. I think it would be super, super cool if we found evidence of past life. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed. It would be phenomenally exciting to identify that and totally shift our, our way of thinking. I think we all we all have a natural curiosity about how we got here and how we got to where we are on Earth. But I think equally we have this curiosity about whether or not we are alone or if there is a potential for life to have existed somewhere else. So being able to find evidence of that, I think, would be amazing. It really, really would. And key to the possibility of finding that is that Sherlock instrument. Here's Luther Beagle again. The main portion of Sherlock is a spectrometer, and it's a laser Raman fluorescent spectrometer. And what it does is it generates UV photons, uh, 248.6 nanometers for the physicists out there. We take those photons, put them on the surface, and then look and see what happens when those photons interact with the surface. And we get two effects from that that we look at. One is the Raman effect, where those photons lose a little bit of energy, and we look at what the photons come back. And that gives us really an understanding of the what the functional groups are of a particular uh, material on the surface. So we'll be able to see the CH stretch, the CO stretch, CC bonds, things like that. We'll be able to identify mineralogy and organic material from that, that phenomenon. The second phenomenon is fluorescence, and that's a little different where the photon will come in, it'll hit an organic uh, polyaromatic uh, hydrocarbon, a ring structure, and that will give off fluorescence in a much longer wavelength. And that's a much stronger signal. So we'll be able to see if there's what kind of organics are on the surface. So we look at an 100 micron spot. We'll look to see what the mineralogy is in that 100 microns, which is about the size of a human hair. And we'll be able to see the organic com compounds in, in terms of polyaromatic hydrocarbons. <clears throat> and we, we have the ability to scan that laser over a surface. So we'll be able to scan it and make chemical maps. So instead of just saying at this point, we know that there's there's carbonate here, we'll be able to map out where the carbonate is in that particular rock. The other part of Sherlock is an imaging portion. So we have two different imagers on Sherlock. One is the what we call the ACI imager, which is the autofocus and contextual imager. It's a grayscale, 10 microns per pixel imager that does really fine analysis of the surface. It's it's It's... Um, it's a really great camera with fixed field of view. So then we can take our Raman and fluorescent spectra and put it on things that we can actually see in the surface. So sometimes you can see a physical vein go through it. We'll be able to take that Raman signature and, and map out what the vein is with respect to the rest of the rock. And that's really powerful. 
The second part of it is what we have is called the Watson camera, you know, because we have too much time on our hands for acronyms. Watson camera is a virtual reflight of the Molly camera from MSL. And what this does is it, it takes uh, 30 micron per pixel images up to infinity. So the Rover selfies we'll be able to take, we'll be able to take uh, microscopic images of the sample we're looking at. We'll be able to look back on the Rover and identify what's going on with the Rover. If there's anything uh, happening, we'll be able to watch the helicopter deploy with the Watson camera. And we'll take all of that, all of that scientific data and integrate it so that we will be able to make chemical maps. We'll be able to see what's going on with Sherlock, but more importantly, we'll be able to find out what the other instruments are seeing too. So we'll, all of the instruments will be looking at the exact same thing, um, not necessarily at the exact same time, but um, we'll be able to look at what Pixel is measuring in terms of elemental abundance. That's another R-mounted instrument. We'll be able to look at the IR uh, reflectance spectra from SuperCam and uh, put things in contextual imaging. And that's what Sherlock does. It's, uh, we're, we're searching for clues on what Mars is, was Mars habitable, um, and whether there's any evidence of any potential biosignatures on the surface. In a previous episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, I spoke to the people who found possible signs of life in the clouds of Venus. They said to me that there could only ever be possible signs of life with unless you actually go there and see it. Is that the same for signs of life on Mars? Probably not. Anything on the surface of Mars has probably been dead for a very long time. Uh, it used to be habitable. We're going to a river delta, and this river delta was active uh, for tens of thousands, maybe a million years when it was active. And then all of the water went away three or so billion years ago. We know that it also had hydrothermal uh, environments and volcanic activity. Plus, we know it had access to organic carbon. What we know about life on the Earth is about three and a half billion years ago, life on the Earth used liquid water, uh, volcanic activity, um, hydrothermal activity, and or organic material to create life. And that's where, we, that's where we've all originated from. On Mars, uh, soon after that water was there, maybe a million, maybe two, maybe a hundred million years, the um, water all of a sudden started going away because of the planetary dynamo shut off. Just to interject slightly there. So when Mars's geomagnetic field did die away, the planet lost its protective shield against the solar wind, exposing its surface to the ionizing particles spewing out from the sun. That would have stripped away the atmosphere and almost certainly killed off any life that may have existed in Mars's earlier history. Though it's worth remembering that the UAE's HOPE probe is going to be looking at how those particles of those gases in the atmosphere escape today. But back to Luther Beagle. So the question is, is that did life, did life start on Mars as well as the Earth? And so what we're going to do is we're going to go there. We're going to go to a place that has all of the things that we think life needed to start. Liquid water, uh, hydrothermal vents and or volcanic activity and organics. Um, and we're going to look for things. And what we're going to do then is if we see something that is really fascinating in terms of there could have been life associated with this rock or this rock tells us a lot about the origin of Mars, we'll take that rock, we'll take a pencil-like core of it, we'll seal it up, uh, we'll put it on the surface, the next rover will come pick it up and bring it back to Earth where we'll be able to look for 
evidence of life in terrestrial laboratories. It's something you may not be able to bring with you to Mars for whatever reason. Maybe it's synchrotron radiation or just instruments that haven't even been thought of yet. And, you can t- and you'll take these, these particular cores, you'll look at them, and you'll be able to tell whether or not those potential biosignatures, was what we continue to call them, this could have been alive. And you'll be able to say with more definitive answering, this was alive, or look, we see evidence of fossil cells, or we've made some other discovery that could only be done in terrestrial laboratories. And that's part of what sample what makes sample return so special. And that's part of the reason why we're going and doing what we do. It's very difficult for me, even on Venus, or even if you knew something was alive, to identify life in situ, um, life as we know it, because you're always going to have to make some kind of assumptions going in that may or may not hold true. So on a place like Venus, I still think the best path forward would be to bring those samples back to Earth and terrestrial laboratories and look for them here. We argue a lot about life on the Earth and where it is and where it isn't, and it always comes back to bringing it back to the laboratory, multiple different instruments and multiple different observing techniques on the same sample to identify this was life or this wasn't life. Um, and we know life existed on the Earth. Um, on Mars and Venus, it's a, it's a completely different ballgame. We argue all the time in the scientific community on whether those material uh, stromatolites from Straley Pool or Isla in Greenland are alive or were alive. And we know life existed on the Earth. Um, we argue about whether or not life 5, 10, 20 kilometers underground, you know, in a very desolate region of, of a mine where there's just enough liquid water to survive, whether that's alive or not. And so it's, it's a question we have to, we have to grapple with and, and bringing them back is really the only way to answer it. Uh, at least in my lifetime. I'm reminded of the, uh, the you know, there's, there's this speech by Clinton about the Allen Hills meteorite, this meteorite that was found in Antarctica, wasn't it? Uh, Mars meteorite found in Antarctica. And it was used in the in the movie Contact, um, out of context. But the that meteorite, the, you know, there was an American president announcing that there was the possibility of signs of life in that meteorite. That debate has has gone on. You're right. That speech was from that particular rock, and and what that I was I just started. Um, I just I was almost done graduate school when that paper came out as Allen Hills eighty four zero zero one in nineteen ninety six. And what that meteorite really told us, because that's probably the most studied rock in human history at this point. Everybody's looked at it with every different technique. Is that we really don't know how to do a lot of it, and it really helped help move sample return and instrument development forward in a way that I think we actually have a chance of being able to figure this out now. Um, I don't know if before that rock came into existence and the, and the scientific conclusions that people made, whether or not we would have actually thought through it to the point where we have now. And it's, it's a very important rock, if for no other reason than it really got us serious about how we're going to do things like this. And and that led to, that's going to lead to the sample return. That's brilliant, fascinating. I I read I think that there's going to be actually a part of a meteorite, a Martian meteorite from Earth that you're taking back to Mars. Is that right? There is, and uh, we um, uh, it's a uh, uh, the SAU zero zero six meteorite that fell in in Africa, and uh, we need a calibration target, and we have ten calibration targets on the front end of the rover. That we can, so we can identify whether the instrument's working correctly or not, and how well the instrument's working, because we're going to need to test that every every six months or so. Um, anybody who's worked in the lab knows things come out of calibration uh, pretty easily. 
And so what we're going to do is um, uh, we, we decided we needed a, a sample that we could, we could scan across, like I said, make a chemical map that we would already know what the chemical map of it was um, and that had inclusions on it and, and things that made it really interesting so that we could do calibration. And so we got together at the beginning of this process and talked to a few people and the idea of bringing back a piece of Mars to Mars was brought up. And so we have on loan from the Natural History Museum, a piece of Mars that's on the way back. And Carolyn Smith was kind enough to find a, a piece of, of Mars that was uh, in a drawer and um, uh, we're gonna return it. And it's pretty cool because we have the same sample here. So we cut it in half. And so we have mirror faces. Uh, we have one side, one here and one on Mars. And so we'll be able to tell not only how well the instrument's working, but if anything changes uh, as it's exposed oh, to the Martian surface. That's so cool. Oh, that's brilliant. It's a, it's a cool, cool little experiment, yeah. I thought, I thought it was just poetic. But no, there's real science to do. It had a point, and, that, and that's the whole thing. We thought of a whole bunch of cool stuff that we could have done, but we couldn't do it because it didn't have a point to it. Um, you know, you get bored at like 2 o'clock in the morning on a Friday after you're doing an all-day test, and you start thinking of really cool stuff to do. And, uh, um, but that one had a, actually, actually has a point to it, and uh, it's moving. It's, uh, it's there, and you know, in 28 days or so, it'll land and go back to home. So it kind of is the first part of Martian sample return. We return this piece back to Mars. Yeah, love it, love it, love it. You're testing spacesuits as well, is that right? Yeah, we have uh, four spacesuit materials. Our co our, the, the people that built the calibration target are co collaborators at uh, Johnson Space Center, Mark Fries, Trevor Graff, and uh, Aaron Burton. And um, we needed some Teflon and some other material that has really strong Raman peaks. And so one of the things that the spacesuit material is made out of is Teflon and uh, uh, Vitran and uh, polycarbonate, and they all have really good Raman signatures. So we decided that we will take some of their, their material uh, and do an experiment, which is we'll expose it to the Martian environment over the course of the next decade or so to see if this material actually breaks down. And at the same time, we get really good calibration signatures as well. So it's another one of those win-wins. We could have just gone out and bought a piece of Teflon and cut it off and shoved it on the front. But this makes it uh, a lot more interesting. Um, and it also does a really cool science experiment to see whether or not, um, uh, you know, the material will break down over time. But part of Mars 2020 that I haven't talked about it is this, this is a preparation for eventual humans to Mars in and of itself. So we'll bring back the samples, determine whether there's anything uh, in them that'll harm a human. But there's also a couple of experiments, our experiment with the calibration target, MOXIE, which is a, um, an in-situ resource utilization, ISRU, experiment where they're going to try to make oxygen out of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, for, that would prove that you can make rocket fuel on Mars. Um, and there's some other uh, experiments going on as well. Yeah, it's part of the, the whole, uh, you know, trying to get people to Mars one day. You say that it, it'd be looking at the material for the next 10 years or so. Is that the lifespan you expect for Perseverance? The primary mission is only um, is two years. It's a Martian year, uh, a little over 700 days. Uh, but after the primary mission, there's no reason to think that the rover won't still be working. And so I, when I reference 10, 10 years or a decade is that MSL landed in 2012 and is still working very well. Um, it's showing its age. There are things that are breaking because uh, there's nobody there to fix things when they break. 
Um, and so we're hoping, we're hopeful that we will have that same opportunity and that if we're working at the end of two years, that there's no reason you would turn us off and we would continue to just drive uh, and explore as much of Mars as we possibly can. There's one question I just have to ask you, uh, the Martian, right? If, if Mark Watney was on the surface of Mars and he came across the Mars 2020 rover, what could he use from it? He could take Moxie and create oxygen for himself. Um, he could probably wire that up. There's no reason why that wouldn't work forever. Um, he could use the cameras and uh, uh, the um, uh, communication devices to, to communicate with orbiters. And uh, um, but yeah, I think I think he could. He was ingenious enough to find something. <laughs> so I do, these acronyms, these names: Sherlock Watson. What, what's going on? Scanning habitable environments for chemicals and lumen. Chemicals and organics. I can't spell. I'm a really bad speller um, for chemicals and uh, um, uh, uh, organics. Um, so uh, Sherlock is an obvious name. We're going to look for clues for life. So Sherlock looks for clues um, using using microscopic uh, his little microscope, uh, and we thought it was a perfect acronym and it fit. Uh, we have a, a guy at JPL, a deputy PI, Roek Bartia, who's really good at making acronyms. He came up with Sherlock, and then. The story behind Watson is we were um, uh, we were asked if we could put on a, a an infinity camera so that you could actually do watch the helicopter drop and, and do rover selfies because there was nothing on the rover that could do that. And so we took a while to figure out whether or not that was possible. But in the meantime, we came up with the acronym, which stands for Wide Aperture Telescope graphics sensor for operations and engineering. The first acronym we came up with was weird appendage tapped on the Sherlock for operations and engineering, but we knew that wasn't going to fly. So we had a whole bunch of acronyms set up. And it really, and the, the thing of it was, is that it, at first it was just a, a placeholder until we came up with the real name, but about six months into writing the, the first proposal. So you write a large proposal, you send it to NASA with a bunch of other people, and then they select the ones they like best. But about six months before the proposal was due, Sherlock came into public domain. And so it was okay to use. Um, and so um, we, we kept it because it's really cool. And uh, there's some other things with the, you know, there's, there's the, um, we have a few things on, on the calibration target in terms of visual markings. Uh, they're called um, festooning uh, that we use for calibration and stuff like that. So there's a dancing man cipher on one of our, our, um, our, our calibration targets. Uh, we have the Sherlock and a Sherlock maze where Sherlock is looking through to, to figure out how to get out of the maze and things like that. Um, because it really, it really does, uh, it really helps us. We, it, it helps us relax. And then we go through and we find other acronyms like Adler. Um, we had Adler for a while, which is the, uh, basically the cabling for Sherlock. There's 150 cables on Sherlock. So we had to call them something other than cabling. So we came up with Adler, who, and I can never remember what it stands for, but it's actually a legitimate acronym. Um, uh, and we've put in proposals uh, to planetary protection called Moriarty. Um, and we just, we sometimes have a good time with it. Um, we never did get Mycroft. Uh, we couldn't find out something from Mycroft, but we, uh, we enjoy it. That'll be the 2026 mission. Mycroft can come and save Sherlock. There you go. Yeah, that would be cool. Um, but it does it does release the tension, and, and it's fun to to sit around and think of it. Especially, it gets your mind off some technical issues sometimes you're having, and it allows you to 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 step back. Whatever the name of that mission, when those rocks return to Earth from Mars, one person you'll be hoping to put on a gloves 
is Kelsey Moore. Absolutely, I do. <laughs> that is my my ultimate dream of my career is to be able to get my hands on some potentially biosignature containing rocks from Mars and dig into them. That would be amazing. <laughs> Definitely. But that requires the landing and everything to go smoothly. Where are you going to be watching it? We're all going to be virtual for this one. Um, and one of my favorite things about the Mars 2020 team is that it's composed of scientists and engineers from all over the world, from so many different research institutions, different expertise. So it's been a great collaborative effort with some really brilliant people that I've been lucky enough to work with. But doing that all virtually and having virtual celebrations is its going to be different (laughs) this year. So we've been um, trying to think of some ideas for how we can all come together and celebrate, even though we can't physically be in the same space. Yeah, I imagine that it's going to be you know, the entire science and engineering teams collectively holding their breaths and just waiting in silence for the, for the rover to land and hoping that everything goes as it should. From what I've heard of the past experiences, you know, it's it's terrifying while it happens. And then ultimately you get to breathe a sigh of relief and be really excited to dive into the, the actual mission itself. Did you watch the launch? I did, Yes. It was up very early in the morning. <laughs> it was actually my first. So I recently moved to California and the day of the launch was 4 a.m. Um, in Pasadena. And there was a tiny earthquake that happened. And that was my first earthquake that I experienced since moving here. <laughs> it was like the earth was celebrating sending the rover yes. off. <laughs> Just wishing you luck on the way. Exactly. Just a little shake. <laughs> well, I'm with planet Earth, I have to say. I, I just think it's a wonderful wonderful thing and I wish you the best of luck with it. I, it, it from my point of view I'll be watching you know with my family we'll be watching from the sidelines and it's just incredibly exciting but you're right in the thick of it you're really invested in it yeah it's been incredible I was lucky enough to start working uh, in the lab that I'm currently a postdoc fellow in um, I started working with the scientists there a couple of years ago during my PhD and I got to come back and forth and see what JPL was like pre-pandemic um, and it's it's a really fun place with really great energy it's all hustle bustle everybody is excited to chat about science and you've got this great combination of engineers and scientists and um, yeah it's just it's a really fun and exciting place to be where everyone is so passionate and excited about what they do that you kind of can't help but get swept up in the excitement of it you know the pandemic has made my transition in as a new employee a little bit unique (laughs) compared to Mm -hmm. past years Um, but that excitement I have seen showing through still even in the in the virtual world with people which has been great yeah Uh, so there was curiosity there's perseverance what's next That's a great question. That's the naming system is actually one of my favorite things. I love the way that they incorporate just the general public and kids especially and get kids excited about the rover missions by submitting suggestions for names. I think it's great. I did vote for the names um, and Perseverance was the one that I voted for. One of the things that's the coolest to me is that this is the start of so many exciting potential discoveries to be made. So young kids getting excited about this mission and then getting to watch it through as they grow up and maybe get excited and want to dive into science themselves. I love the idea of that. I think it's going to be a really fun future for for that generation. This may be Kelsey's first mission, but there's no sign of that passion, of that excitement diminishing 
for Luther, who's been here before. I've slept in a terrible way from the time we've got the proposal funded. So I'm on like four, five hours sleep every night because like I said, it's seven years of terror thinking about everything that could possibly go wrong. It feels like I'm 13 and Christmas is around the corner is really what it feels like. And I, I know that my parents got me something really cool and I'm going to have so much fun when it comes. And it's been really hard. So I've been counting down the days. I don't know what the couple nights before is going to look like, but I'm sure there won't be a lot of sleep. Um, it's uh, you, you work the, the Sherlock concept. Everything takes a lot longer than you would think. The Sherlock concept was started in 1998. Um, and it probably has its roots even before then. And, you know, there's been, you, you, you work for 15 to 20 years to even get to the point where you can propose it to be on a future mission. And then it gets selected and you've got another decade out before it lands. And then you've got a decade of actually using it. And it's a, it's a long time. My, um, you know, when I first started working on this, my daughter was, when we started working on the proposal, my, my daughter, who's now getting ready to get a driver's license was was three years old. My son, who is in college now, is you know barely you know he's eight. And uh, um, you know when you think about when we first started the concept, or when people first started the concept, my I didn't even have a family and wasn't really planning on getting married. And now I have a house and two kids, and uh, the one kid's in college and wants to come back and intern. And it's crazy because it's it's a really long time for everything. So. If you hear about the, the next set of missions to the outer planets, you know, if they don't launch till 2035, they don't get there till 2042. And all of a sudden, you know, these start really start adding up. And, and now it's 2020. And the people that have been working on those instruments and that concept have been working on them for a decade. So they start working on 2010 with no guarantee it's going to work out to 2042 and beyond. And it's, it's, it's a, you have to take the long view and you've got to like what you do on a day in, day out basis. And if you don't do that, then you're, you've, uh, you've already lost. But I'm already starting to get excited. <laughs> it, everybody has their own reasons for doing it. And that's one thing that I, I never really fully appreciated before I, I started working on MSL. So I, I worked on MSL from 2007 to about 2018. Um, but everybody has their own reasons for doing it. Some people just like the tinkering. Some people like to answer the bigger questions. Some people uh, enjoy the, the idea of space exploration. And it's, it's fascinating because we, we do socialize a lot because we're around each other all the time. And uh, we start talking about what our motivations are. And it's, it's, it's all over the place. It's, I've always been fascinated by trying to find life in the universe since I was seven or eight and saw um, you know, movies about aliens and things like that and figuring out how you would actually go do this. Um, but there are other people who just really love being on the forefront of technology. And you think to yourselves, well, if you're not doing this particular build, you would probably be either working at SpaceX or maybe even working on the vaccine uh, for COVID. You, I could have seen you've done a, a different go through in life. And, and there's people that just are just wired differently because you do have to take the long view of things. And certain people, and what's even more fascinating is where it's a crazy, crazy business because some people work all their lives on a certain technique and never get a launch. And they, they put their heart and soul into it. And, you know, it, it's, 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 but they keep the the drive of trying to figure things out is always there. Um, it's one of the things that when we hire people at JPL, we always ask, why do you want to come work at JPL? And there's there's an answer, which is because I just want to go explore the universe. And if they don't say that, then you're like, uh, you know, it's it's uh, 
um, that's the correct answer. We want to go explore and, and how the details behind that is anybody is up to the individual. But it is the coolest thing ever. Well, there was an argument that that might well be true. But even if it isn't, it's certainly up there. And I know I'll be watching the live feeds with no little excitement come February the 18th. Thank you very much to Luther Beagle and Kelsey Moore for talking to me. And I look forward to hearing more about the discoveries about our planetary neighbour, Mars. Next month, we'll be looking at something else from this wonderful world of physics. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.